where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today I'm sitting down with Paul Scott, Advisor and Director at Digital Village, General Manager at Evergreen Digital and co-author of the book Beyond Agile, How to Run Smarter, Faster and Less Wasteful Projects. Projects or projects, Paul? Welcome, Paul. It's projects for me, of course, because I'm English. It's, poor. it's, pro- <laughs> of course. it's probably projects <laughs> for everybody else. But yeah, thank you. Good to, good to be here, Darren. Well, look, uh, and, and thank you for uh, taking the time or making the time, uh, especially during a uh, pandemic, to sit down and have a conversation, particularly about the role of uh, customer experience and customer service. And in an area that you've had... Uh, extensive experience, especially I see uh, in the subcontinent and the Middle East, and that is call centres. How did you find yourself developing this sort of call centre technology management in all of all places, uh, the Middle East and India? Uh, yeah, it's a good question, um, Darren. And I think the, um, the honest answer is um, it was an accident. And um, I think that I ended up working in um, these strange uh, foreign places because there was probably nobody else in the business who wanted to do it, uh, or there was nobody else who was dumb enough to pick up what looked like ridiculous, impossible projects and was prepared to, <laughs> to give it a go. Um, but but uh, that said, I was, um, I was very privileged to, to be able to work with an extraordinary group of people at Dimension Data and at Merchants, uh, the call center specialists, outsourcing specialists. Um, and, and they just gave me this opportunity to go and work in uh, places like Bahrain and uh, in Mumbai uh, and the States and Europe and a little bit of work in Australia as well, which um, you know gave me the opportunity to, to learn more about this country too. Well, it is interesting. And the reason I say, you know, how did it happen is because, you know, I don't know many people that sort of, you know, graduate from university or enjoying a, work, a working career and then suddenly go, you know what? <laughs> I think I'm going to specialise in customer experience, particularly call centres, because yeah, a lot of people have very negative attitudes towards call centres. And and I was one of those people. Um, you know, I I think that uh, gr- growing up and in my early twenties, um, uh, call centres were just becoming a thing, and uh, and I I was very frustrated with the poor quality of service that I got from call centres. But the beginning part of my career was in marketing. Um, in the manufacturing sector and then in the IT sector. Um, And then I sort of gravitated towards management consultancy and specifically into the call center area. Um, So I I wish I could say that there was a plan to it, but there wasn't. But I do think that um, the, the years that I spent in marketing really gave me an opportunity to understand this um, this gap that there is between customer service and marketing, which I've always struggled to understand because um, you know marketers are obsessed with understanding customers and wanting to know 
uh, what are customers thinking and what they're doing and how they can put together a proposition that's going to meet their needs. And customer services managers are absorbing this and trying to deliver a service against those customer needs on a daily basis. Um, and as you know, um, they gather a lot of information and a huge amount of data now around customers' perceptions, uh, their feedback, uh, how they think, and what their, uh, their needs and wants are. Um, and, and my observation was that they, they don't seem to, they, there seemed to be this kind of disconnect where you know every meeting I ever had with a, a, a marketing director talking about what we were trying to do with, with, uh, with, with the customer service operation, they, they, they didn't seem to appreciate what was there and, and what was possible in terms of gathering insights and information from this extraordinary resource that is you know, usually one of the most expensive operational costs in a business and employs usually in, well, particularly in the services sector, a large number of people. Because uh, often within the organisation, the call centre is you know, controlled or managed outside of the marketing function, isn't it? Indeed. I mean, an outbound call centre would be part of sales, for instance, whereas inbound call centres are often part of customer service uh, or even sales as well. I mean, it's very hard to generalise, but, you know, there's inbound and outbound and the two have quite different functions, don't it, they? It's, yes, and I think it's it's changed over time. I mean, certainly, um, you know, we've just had the 20th um, anniversary of the internet and and when the internet was, was developing, um, call centres were beginning to play a role in servicing customers that were beginning to transact electronically as well. And it's, it's obvious that there, was, um, that there have been a number of instances, and we came across this in, in merchants during the sort of uh, mid to late 2000s, early 2000s, that um, often a CTO would be given responsibility for call centers because lots of technology, um, but also a lot of people. Um, and one of the examples I think I gave you, Darren, was... Um, the, the time we worked with a, a, a large online travel business where the IT director was actually responsible for customer service. Um, and we were really puzzled as to why that was the case. But when we sat down with him and talked about what he was doing, it became obvious that he saw um, the way in which they were interacting with customers across multiple channels as being the reason why it made sense for the uh, head of technology to be managing it, um, and and the, the the CTO in question uh, came up with this phrase, which has stuck with me ever since. Which is, um, he said, there are three things that I know about customers as a result of working uh, with with the call center people now, and that is number one, the customer is rarely, if ever, right, and I know that to be true because I've got the data to prove it. And the data that, of course, he was gathering across uh, customer interactions on the internet was the data that was basically providing insight um, around what customers really need and want. And he was very, very scathing and skeptical about the use of things like customer focus groups and undertaking commissioned research with customers because he felt that 
you weren't getting truthful answers from customers. There was a lot of groupthink behind it, particularly in uh, in focus group situations. So, you know, his his belief was that the customer is rarely, if ever, right, and the reason is because we've got the data to prove it. <laughs> it's his his second point was. Um, uh, I love it when customers complain because every time a customer complains and picks up the phone, there's an opportunity to learn more about what's broken in the customer journey because they were usually phoning up when they couldn't complete a booking or the tickets didn't arrive or they couldn't find what they were looking for. So, you know, he obsessively gathered that that qualitative information around the customer experience as well to use that to improve what they did and and he had an army of data analysts who uh, data scientists who were looking at the data in relation to how customers were moving through their application and then using this overlay of what customers was were actually telling him about their experience and then the third thing was um he said the other reason why he loved it when customers complained, because he knew if they could actually resolve the customer's query, that customer would spend 12% per annum more than a customer that didn't complain or didn't get through to them to, 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 to voice their complaint. And he said on that basis alone, that was the business case for them to employ 5,000 people globally answering the telephone, actually in customer service, uh, which was an astonishing insight for me. I mean, it's the first time I'd come across uh, this this extraordinary combination of data that they were gathering online, plus the data that that they were gathering through the call center and using it in this this way to actually drive improvements in the business and profitable growth. Well, Paul, it's interesting that third point especially because you know one of the big complaints that people have about the purely online experience is that you often feel that there is no one listening. You know, when something goes wrong in the e-commerce uh, shopping process, there is no one to talk to, or there's a bot to chat to. But the bot's just responding to whatever you type in mm. on a pre, in a pre-programmed way. Call centers for all of the you know the uh, perceived uh, nastiness about it, you know that about being harassed or being put on hold or whatever. Um, at least you're talking to a human being, you know, and that there can be some level of empathy and and belief that you're being listened to as a customer. So of course, in that if you have that experience, you're going to reward the business and the brand for actually it's. For listening to you, it's uh, it's part of traditional customer service, isn't it? It is, and and it uh, it has you know profound benefits for organisations who who buy into the idea that it's a good thing to be uh, encouraging customers to call. Um, one of uh, Australia's most successful internet service providers um, is, is iNet. And uh, we work with INET uh, from the, the mid-2000s onwards. They're still a customer of uh, Dimension Data and um, NTT now, who bought Dimension Data. Um, and and their, their CEO, Mike Malone, was one of, one of the early advocates of uh, Net Promoter Score. And Net Promoter Score uh, is uh, the, really the only um, 
KPI that, that has a, a measurable outcome on the profitability and the loyalty of customers. So Net Promoter Score, for, for, for those who are not familiar with it, I'm guessing the majority of your audience will be, um, Net, Net Promoter Score standard is, is, is a measure of from zero through to 10, um, and it's based on asking one question with a follow-up. And the one question is, based on the experience that you've just had with our company, um, on a scale of zero through to 10, how likely are you to recommend us to a friend or colleague? And if you score a nine or- And why? At, well, that's the follow-up. So the follow-up question is, yeah. uh, can, you, can you explain why you've given us this score? Um, so, so there you've got it. You've got the qualitative and the quantitative information in a nutshell, in one conversation. Um, and organizations who, who take the verbatim comments that customers provide in that scenario and, and do something we call closing the loop in the call center world, um, i.e. take that information, understand why the customer's given us this score. So if it's something that's in, a, in, in the sort of one to six category, you know you've got a serious problem, um, and fix that problem and then go back to the customer and say, thank you for your feedback. Uh, we would like to um, explain to you what action we've taken to, to try and improve that, um, that experience the next time around. And we'd be very keen to get your feedback on that as well, of course. So Mike Malone started implementing this in the, the early 2000s, and his belief was that if you could do this consistently, you would reduce customer churn, um, and therefore you would improve, uh, and you would improve the, the number of instances of customers coming back for more, and you would you would you would improve the number of customers who would recommend to other customers. Um, and, he, and he was proved right. I mean, iNet was the most profitable ISP in Australia year after year after year. And they, their net promoter scores were consistently in the, the high 50s, early 60s. In fact, probably beyond the 60s at, at one stage as well. Um, and that led them to, to be, you know, when they were acquired eventually by TPG, they were still the most successful business in, in the ISP. ISP world from a profitability standpoint. Where they are now, I'm not sure. But I, I think that's kind of, for me, was, was validation that there is real value in combining the, the qual and the quant and using it in a way which is actually going to improve customer experience and the processes in the business. Well, net promoter scores have become almost ubiquitous in, in many different companies. You know, boards and CEOs are sitting there looking at their net promoter score. And we hear stories about certain categories. You know, I heard once financial services often track around in the minus total, yeah, the minus uh, results because uh, I think a lot of the time they're actually applied in quite a uh, flawed way. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I went to make an online purchase, which is basically searching, choosing the product, clicking on to put in the basket, clicked on checkout, went through. There was nothing extraordinary about it. You know, it was all up to me just to navigate their system. And as soon as I, I hit uh, pay and, and the transaction was done, it came up with, we'd like to ask you how that experience was, you know. Now, why? 
because the whole reason I purchased something was to actually receive it. I get that they have very little control over the, you know, the logistics of Australia Post or whoever delivering it to me. But in that moment, there was nothing exceptional about the experience that I hadn't had a hundred other times buying products. And so I think Net Promoter has become almost uh, overused yes. or used in the wrong it's, circumstances. Well, it's, it's used in the wrong circumstances or implemented incorrectly. So, so I, I would say probably seven out of 10 of the implementations of Net Promoter Score are not done correctly. And mm. the reasons why are exactly the kinds of reasons that you've just described, which is you know, implemented in the wrong way and uh, without any context, uh, not using the correct scores. I mean, the number of times I've seen people score it one to 10 rather than zero to 10, um, I can't, I've lost count of. And also recognizing there actually, there are two types of net promoter score. There is a relationship based net promoter score, which, are, which asks the question either, you know, once a year or perhaps twice a year, how are you feeling about our business? Um, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to recommend us? And then there's, um, there is a process net promoter score, which, which basically is seeking to get feedback on stages of the, inter, of the customer journey. And, and that is the one that is probably the worst in terms of um, consistency of results, because it's not implemented correctly or it's out of context and the customer's not clear why you're being asked the question at this particular moment because you haven't completed the transaction and you haven't received the goods. Why are you asking me this question now? Um, so, you know, we I used to advise organizations to think very, very carefully about implementing Net Promoter Score in this sort of um, stages of the customer journey because it can easily be, um, you start giving some really false results uh, and not really add any value and, and also begin to piss customers off because I think, why are you asking me this question now? I haven't even got the goods. You know, let me see what you're going to deliver for me. Then I'll tell you whether it was a good experience or not. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, it did it turn up broken? Well, that's not our problem because we dispatched it unbroken. It's not our fault that the, the, the logistics company didn't get it to you in time. You, you quite rightly pulled me up on the point that the first is on a scale of zero to 10. Yes. How likely are you to recommend? And then the question is, uh, and why? Yes, why? Please explain why you gave that score. Yeah. But I've also noticed that quite a number of um, call centres in the mobile world are saying, would you mind staying on the line for a very short survey? Uh, survey. Yes, and then it'll say to me, please give a score where 10 is uh, absolutely and zero is not at all yes. by pushing the keypad. Yes. And then it hangs up on you as soon as you give that score. Now, in some Pointless. ways, this is putting numbers in out of context, isn't it? It is putting numbers out of context. And, and again, it's this kind of um, temptation that everybody has to, to take an established process and say, oh, I think we can improve on that. I think we can, yeah. We can improve on that. Let's make it one to five rather than zero to ten. Well, that's not going to make that's not going to help, you know, because you're all you're doing is basically, you know, twisting the original idea into something that you think is going to be better, um, but very rarely is. It, and we'll 
probably have the same conversation around Agile. It, it, it's, it's just people cannot help themselves but look at a, a process and say, oh, we can improve on that. You know, the fact that there's <laughs> 11 or no, the, the nearly 20 years worth of data backing up the net promoter score approach of zero through to 10 with the follow-up question, why would you think you could improve on that? I mean, you know, 30,000 businesses around the world are using it. It's working okay. Let's just stick with what we yeah. know. And, and actually, when you're trying to do this comparison, benchmarking is another thing that call centers are obsessed with, you know, because it's a, obviously a measure of how, how you're, you're doing against your peers or against or call centers of the same size. So if you don't have a benchmark, which is using the same measurement framework, you can't really compare yourselves in a meaningful way to any of your competitors. Yeah, I actually read once that the modern uh, term benchmark came from call centre technology because they were capturing huge amounts of data such as, you know, duration on call, uh, number of hang yep. up, yeah, number of people had hung up early. All this call length, yeah, call length. Yep. Uh, all yep. that yep. sort of stuff was being captured, and this became a benchmark. But in actual fact, you know, it's a bit like uh, what uh, on one side, what gets measured gets managed. Indeed. But the other is not everything that can be measured is actually meaningful. Because I've also read that those benchmarks have changed, or what's measured Hugely. has changed, because they're starting Hugely. to realise that. Getting people off the call, getting customers off the call, is not necessarily a good thing. It's it's absolutely right. And look, I mean, I think the industry's gone through a massive um, uh, evolution there because, uh, you know, 20 years ago, call centres typically would have between 100 and 150 different KPIs that they'd be tracking and reporting on, and and it drove the wrong kind of experience, and consequently, you know, you would have a bad customer experience. When call centers began going offshore, um, you know, in the in the sort of 2007, 2008 onwards, um, the customer experience has got worse and worse. I mean, how many how many times have you, you know, either heard from somebody or said yourself, "Oh God, I was on that um, that call." To, I think I think it was in the Philippines, or it might have been in India, but anyway, it wasn't a very good experience. It's not because those people are doing a bad job usually, it's because they're being managed in the wrong way and they're being driven by a set of metrics which are not meaningful anymore. Um, mm. you know, the call centers who've embraced a more customer-centric approach will do away with the majority of those 150 measures and just focus on the ones which are actually important around customer experience. Um, which is why Net Promoter Score became so popular because it, it addressed probably another 20 KPIs that were in place beforehand. And the other thing that we've noticed uh, in marketing is that with this uh, move to e-commerce and uh, the customer experience becoming increasingly online, marketers are increasingly asked to be taking responsibility for customer experience. And the point that you made earlier, it's interesting that there's not, it doesn't appear to be a huge move of marketers interested in call centres. But I would also say there's not a huge number of marketers interested in walking the retail shop floor either. 
<laughs> so, so, so that's that's uh, an astute observation as well, Dan. I, I think um, the thing that that one of the things that changed uh, perceptions amongst a lot of marketing managers that I work with was when we asked them to listen to customer calls um, in the days when DVDs were uh, were popular and CDs were popular. We used to give marketing managers and our clients, uh, once a week, we give them a DV, a DVD or a, or a CD with customer calls on it and say, look, when you get in the car, just stick this on and listen to a few calls on the way into work. And the number of times that marketing managers would come back to us and said, I never knew that happened. Oh my God, I've just learned so much around how customers perceive us and the issues they're having with our products that I never would have known about until I listened to calls. And then it becomes a habit, you know. So it's one of the things I would encourage any any marketing manager to do is go have a chat to your head of customer service and say, can you send me some some files of calls so I can just listen and understand what customers are saying? Um, Because it it, it is qualitative information and it takes time. And I appreciate, you know, they may be time poor, but just just get it on on your iPhone, get it on an iPad, listen to calls. I guarantee you will learn more about customers that way than you will do through probably 20 or 30 seminars that you'll listen to or, or um, podcasts you'll listen to. Um, and, it, and it gives you a different perspective. That's the other thing. It gives you a, a rich perspective and you know, deep perspective on what it is customers really think and feel. And, and Paul, I'd say you know, your, your story about your CIO or CTO um, in that you're getting the real customer. You're not getting the one that's sitting in a focus group or being confronted by a, uh, a researcher and asked particularly framed questions. This is actually their experience. This is them, in many ways, the naked customer at either their best or worst point in time with your brand and business. Absolutely right. And it's in the moment. It's, it's, it's fueled with emotion. Um, it, it's real. It's not imagined. You know, how many times in focus groups do, 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 do marketing people or agency people say, we'd like you to imagine X, Y, no, no, no. What was it like actually doing it? What happened when you did this? Because that's when you, you get the authenticity and you get, you know, real factual information around what a customer's experience really is rather than what they imagine it might be or what their perceptions might be. Mm. Yes, that's valuable in some context but if you really want to know you've got to you've got to have a proper conversation with the customer to understand how they're experiencing your product or service mm. uh, you're reminding me of uh, when i was a uh, creative director on blockbuster video because you know typical of those big uh, american service businesses they had a policy that every employee and all of their suppliers would come and work at least one day a month in a uh, one shift a month in a blockbuster video and i remember having visions of being like quentin tarantino who you know got inspiration for many of his films from working (laughs) in a video shop Uh, except it wasn't like that they always used us to uh, phone up the customers that had the overdue videos remember when there was overdue videos before streaming so we were getting the worst yeah excuse me sir (laughs) our records show that your copy of you know blah, blah, is three weeks overdue. It was terrible. (laughs) 
Well, it, it is. Te- it is. It can be quite terrifying. I mean, that, that's it. similarly in the Middle East, we used to uh, we used to get the management team to come down into the store, um, which was next to the call center. Um, in fact, one of one of the uh, the implementations we did, um, and that kind of face to face experience with customers uh, or the experience that, that they got in the call center was was a was a game changer. Yeah, and it, and it changed the whole the conversation that would then take place. In the in the boardroom, was a different kind of conversation because they'd all be wanting to throw in their anecdotes about oh yeah I was speaking to this woman and sh- and she tried to get a mobile device from us and it took five weeks to get there and you know they begin to get totally engaged with what it is customers are experiencing. It's uh, you don't think the problem is that uh, it's uh, potentially where strategy meets reality that marketers will often. You know, have this beautiful brand strategy and the fear is that when it actually collides with the reality of the customer experience it's all going to go horribly wrong <laughs> that's the, that that is that is a possibility but you know I think we have to kind of temper it and uh, and hope that um, you know the opportunity to to actually understand what customers are thinking either through gathering data from net promoter score or by listening to calls is it just broadens people's perspective and it gives them evidence that they can use to start driving their own decision-making process. So, you know, yes, there's a ton of data that we can now get from social media and from, uh, from online purchases, um, but, but it's, it's, it tends to be a little bit one-dimensional. You know, it's not really, it doesn't have the, the emotion component. It doesn't have the real-world uh, anecdote behind it, um, so so I, I I do think it is a combination of these things. I don't think it's it's a good idea to just focus on one or the other, um, but if you can bring the two together and start using those two sources to then uh, drive decision making, you're going to end up in a much much better place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things, and I think with your, your background, especially with uh, technology, is I like the way this approach that you're talking about uses unstructured data and structured data in that listening to these calls in many ways is reviewing unstructured data which could stimulate a thought or hypothesis my science background coming out you know it's an observation that leads to a hypothesis that could then be tested by the more structured data that's collected by the call center Indeed, and a lot of call centers nowadays are doing data analytics on those voice calls. So, so taking the voice calls, getting them transcribed, and then doing the analytics on, on what's coming through. But again, the challenge is, is getting the emotional component of it. So you might be able to transcribe literally word for word what a customer says on a call, um, but being able to get the inferred um, emotional component to it and the pitch and uh, and how they're actually, uh, their demeanor at the time that they're making the call and the scenario that they're in, a lot of that doesn't, doesn't get translated when uh, voice calls get transcribed into uh, unstructured data, which is then analyzed. You know, Google Analytics has come a long way and I know that, um, that Google's very, very good at doing this. Um, but you still need to to be able to overlay the um, that the actual voice component, so you can hear the the emotional 
uh, state and the, the pitch and the tone of the person who's, who's on the call. Yeah, I was talking to a uh, colleague who's very into uh, AI, artificial intelligence. He said uh, that they're doing a lot of work in this, uh, listening to people's voices. Yep. He actually said that uh, Australians particularly uh, and their sarcasm makes it particularly difficult for uh, the AI <laughs> to program because so many of the programmers come from yeah. the US, which sarcasm goes completely over their heads. Maybe if we... They have no idea what's going on there. <laughs> Maybe if we yeah. had more English and Australian programmers, they'd be able to crack that one. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, you've get, there, there, are so, there are so many different facets to a, to a voice, you know, um, and, and to the ethnicity of the person as well, you know, that... Um, their, their, their race and background. So um, there's only so much at the moment that AI can do in this space. Um, it's it's certainly going. It, it's it's moving so fast now, and can see a situation in probably two or three years' time when um, AI will be able to do as much as perhaps a, a human can do listening to a call. But um, in the meantime, I, I I just think that there's such a lot of value. Um, for marketing people in particular, um, to to use the, the the data that they've got, and to use the um, the sources that they've got, um, to be able to to make decisions based on a combination of qual- qualitative and quantitative and. That's where you're getting from a call centre. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, look, this has uh, been a fascinating conversation, Paul, because uh, my experience of call centres is usually it's uh, dinner time. I've got uh, two uh, hungry children demanding to be fed. There's food cooking and then someone, a a number I don't recognise pops up on my mobile phone and someone starts trying to uh, quiz me about my either financial, telco, utilities. Uh, But clearly it takes a, uh, or there's an opportunity for a a greater customer experience out of this than just trying to flog me something at the least appropriate time. Yeah, I agree. And and look, those those, um, unsolicited calls are are really not welcomed. and, uh, and, and are becoming probably less and less prevalent, you know, as people are getting better at blocking calls. Um, and there's legislation around to prevent those calls from, uh, from becoming too much of a pest as well. Um, but it's more to do with the, the outbound stuff, you know, and I do think that um, I, I sincerely hope that organisations will see the value in maintaining strong uh, customer service operations that can handle inbound calls from customers um, as part of the um, the overall customer experience and the marketing mix because you know it, organizations who do that have a profoundly better chance of delivering a great customer experience than those who say don't put the phone number up on the website don't let customers call us if if they can't fix it with a bot then that will will send them off to a uh, to a group site, you know, a user site, and they can fix it there. Um, that's that's a bad customer experience, you know. People don't like that. I don't. Yeah, I just think it's kind of missing the point, which is wherever you reach a, a stage in dealing with a customer service situation where you need to speak to a human being. Absolutely. And to prevent people from doing that is is really asking for trouble. Um, because people will complain and it goes out on social media 
And then you're dealing with a, a firestorm of more people saying, oh, yeah, I've had the same experience. Yeah, I couldn't get through to a call center. I didn't even find their telephone number. Not good. It's interesting that, that you make that point because I think it's actually the major social media platforms are the biggest offenders. You know, the Facebooks and the Googles and the of the world are the ones that you'll never find a phone number for. But then I point out to people that you are not the customer. You are actually the product there uh, being indeed. sold. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, so I'm sure they have a call centre for the advertisers that they actually get generate their revenue from. But you, my friend, as a no. simple user of a technology platform are the product that's being sold, not yep. the customer that's having an experience there. So I've got a, a just uh, to wrap up here, um, Darren, I've got a list of companies and their net promoter scores. So you just mentioned yep. Facebook, minus 21, <laughs> right? Um, Amazon, 25. Not bad. Mm. Apple, 47. Wow. Um, Disney, and I'm struggling to understand how this happened. Disney, minus seven. Uh, Google, 11. Microsoft, 45. Wow. Um, so none of these are stellar scores. And although the Apple score of 47 is the highest of the bunch, um, they were scoring in the high 50s, early 60s, not long ago. But their score seems to have come down quite a bit. Um, McDonald's, minus eight. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, so look, I, I think that um, it, what it proves is that there, there's quite a lot of variance there, even in the same categories. Um, you know, Facebook's minus 21, Google's 11. Yeah. Um, but, but as you say, none of them are stellar, are they? None of them are stellar. Yeah. None of them are stellar. So there's room for customer experience improvement. The most definitely is. Well, Paul Scott, thank you. I've just uh, realised we've run out of time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, because we've run out of time, I'm going to invite you back again uh, for a future right. podcast on Agile and especially having a conversation uh, based around your book, Beyond Agile. So uh, I hope that you'll accept the invitation. It's very kind of you, Darren. I'd love to come back and talk about Beyond Agile as well. Paul, just before you go, mm. I do have a question. Can you share with me the worst recording you've ever heard from a call centre? Mm.